Welcome to the State of the Markets podcast. I'm Paul Rodriguez of thinktrading.com. I'm Tim Price of pricevaluepartners.com. And our very special guest is George Cooper. He's the Chief Investment Officer at Equitile Investments. He's also the author of The Origin of Financial Crises, Money, Blood and Revolution and Fixing Economics. He has over 27 years of investment experience. He's worked at Deutsche Bank, Goldman Sachs and JP Morgan. George Cooper, welcome to the show. Thank you, Paul, Tim. Pleased to be here. So tell us about yourself. How did you get involved in the financial markets? I started at that uh, that firm that everybody loves to hate, which is Goldman Sachs, um, managing uh, bond portfolios. The, the real cause was ultimately my wife. She got a job in London and decided that I had to move here with her. So that's what got me involved. I never really had much interest originally in financial markets. So I was a scientist before that. Um, but a, pro- a proper scientist, as opposed to the, what passes for science these days. <laughs> um, yes, I was a research scientist at Durham University. Um, and before that, I was actually a semiconductor engineer. I used to make silicon chips. Oh, brilliant. Um, so I've had, uh, I've had a few different uh, jobs um, before I came into, into finance. And, um, and I guess the, that background was part of what got me interested in monetary policy and in central banking and in economic theory. And uh, to cut a long story short, why economic theory is is really fundamentally flawed. It's it, anti-scientific, if you like. Um, and that's what got me into uh, writing a couple of books, which is, I think, probably how we originally met Tim through those, which is, um, I wrote a book quite a, quite a while ago called The Origin of Financial Crisis, which was basically explaining how um, central bank monetary policy, and particularly Alan Greenspan's policy at the time, was, was helping to inflate uh, asset bubbles. And one thing led to another, and that sort of uh, grew into a into a second book, which is a more uh, a more fundamental criticism of economic theory um, called Fixing Economics. Um, so that's a sort of potted history of, uh, of my background, if you like. So, if you want to fix economics, what, you throw the rule book out and start again is probably where I would I would begin. Yeah, I mean it, it's it, it is an absolute nonsense the way it's taught. Um, Funnily enough, I'm a I'm a physicist originally by by background, and what what I think economics has got wrong is it's tried to copy the template of physics. Yeah. So it's tried yeah. to find very simple, elegant mathematical laws that describe the economy as a sort of clockwork system, like classical physics. Um, I think what they what we really need to do is throw out that whole body of thinking and go back to a different uh, scientific template, and that is to use Darwinian evolution, the biological system, as, as the basic template to think about, uh, about how the economy works. And I think that's a, that would be a much more productive way to look at the world. I couldn't agree with you more. I think that's nail hit right on the head. Um, what I found interesting about some of the guests that um, – Tim has invited on to the podcast is we, we've we've spoken to some uh, economists who normally as a as a someone who's worked in the city technical analyst trader myself I would normally be skeptical of of 
their ability to predict markets. But actually, we've spoken to some fantastic economists who who have in common the fact that they don't use traditional economics. They all say, right, I don't use the book, uh, begged Ormbus Fisher, I think I remember from when I did economics. I have this, I can see what's wrong with it, but I use this and this is my lens on the market. So it's interesting that the people who are practitioners and uh, are more practical in, t- in terms of their analysis, i.e. you don't just write a paper and put it out there and you know you don't really care whether you're right or wrong, which in, in the city, many economists just write reports. It doesn't matter whether they're right or wrong because they have no risk involved. Well, nobody reads them anyway <laughs> well yeah um but but it's it's so interesting to find economists who actually know what they're doing to to put it another way yeah i mean it's you know i my my hobby i like to say my my hobby is trying to explain what's wrong with economics and monetary policy my day job is is effectively to exploit what's wrong with monetary policy and economics which is as an investor as a professional investor trying to to beat the markets and it's it is remarkable just how much um how much of a nonsensical approach you would you end up taking if you follow mainstream economic theory i mean it's it's very clear that's not how markets work markets are not equilibrium equilibrium seeking systems in the way uh, the models predict they're they're disequilibrating yeah. systems and and that is once you once you make the mental leap, once you um, once you accept that this huge body of knowledge in inverted commas is just wrong, it's quite liberating, and you, you can see the world in a different way and 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 build a different way of of managing money and you know or, you know even just understanding how society is working. It's always amazed me how um, I mean, how economists can still stick to that principle of of how they think how they've been taught even though they can see it failing even though it's failed i mean the amount of economists who didn't predict the financial crisis who uh got it badly wrong or, or way into the crisis and if it's like a security guard who's just like let let the bank be raided and and you know you put them back on the job and nothing changes it's just there's no there seems to be no feedback loop and i, I think you you hit the nail on the head again when you said it's about education why hasn't the education system changed when it comes to economics? I just can't. I just can't get my head around it. Um, it's a status thing, and in, and in fact, that was my um, that was the topic of my second book, um, which is looking at, um, at at some philosophy uh, comes out of a guy called Thomas Kuhn, um, who wrote a quite a famous book. Um, it's a it's a very impenetrable book. It's a, horrible read but it's called the structure of scientific revolutions and on the face of it it's a study of the process of science if you like i I say he's a scientist of science um but what he's really doing with that book is explaining a lot of what we today call cognitive biases or human biases and the big one that i think uh, underpins all of it and I think, for that matter, is actually um, driving a lot of this uh, nonsense that's going on around uh, COVID at the moment, is um, effectively a status issue. So, when you get um, when you get a bunch of professors like economists that are promoting a fundamentally flawed theory, and the theory and the new de- 
new data comes out to prove that the theory is even more flawed than you thought. If they were acting as scientists, they would reappraise the new data and they would go, okay, we need to amend the theory. But if they do that, given that they're already steeped in the field and they've been promoting their existing theories for essentially all of their professional lives, they would lose status. So they don't, they resist that. And this is, um, I can't remember who said the quote, but um, there's, a, there's a famous quote saying, science progresses one funeral at a time. And this is something that Kuhn actually states explicitly in his book. You can't change people's minds. The experts in the field will never change because they've established their reputation on their existing theories. What will happen instead is they will literally die out and people with new ideas will take their place. And that's, I think that's where economics is at the moment. I think there, there is a growing acceptance from younger people and uh, outsiders to the field that it's just, it's just wrong. But the, the diehards, uh, if you like, Nobel laureates uh, are still clinging on for dear life uh, as, as their ideas get more and more discredited. To that end, um, it reminds me of the origins of uh, the, another thing that we're going to be talking about, with, which is the, the area of healthcare. And the original, if we go back, I, I haven't got the date, so you're going to have to excuse me. So this is just going to be a very general um, anecdote. But there's, um, there was a, an original anatomical book written or, or describing the human body and it was drawn out um using without using the human body so what they the, when it was done thousands of years ago um yeah the, the original drawings would were, were made uh using animals so they didn't yeah, want to use, i i remember i i know the one you're talking about because yeah i uh, i mentioned it in my book uh -huh. unfortunately the the um it was a Greek scholar. Yes. And and they've recreated from his drawings and his uh, from his text about the uh, the anatomy uh, and basically concluded that he used pigs and monkeys. Yes. Uh, and he ne never actually di dissected a human. Um, and this is actually the so my my second book um, it was originally published under the title of Money, Blood, and Revolution, um, and and the blood part comes because I draw very explicitly on a biological analogy. And the guy that that overthrew the Greek theory, because the, the theory you're talking about um, is what led to the theory of uh, the four humours of the body and uh, the idea that blood flow basically started in the liver and then sort of flowed out in a linear fashion and, believe it or not, evaporated through the, the skin. That was the theory of blood flow. Then a guy called uh, Thomas Hardy uh, came in and um, uh, basically did proper dissections of um, of the human body and proved that there was a circulatory flow. Yeah, the, blood around the body. This this now, actually it wasn't actually that. That what what it was was um, there was a, a, an extra rib that was drawn into the diagrams. <laughs> So what happened was there was an extra rib that was drawn into the diagrams. This is why this is so amazing and why it leads leads to the subject of teaching. So what would happen is you, you'd have students who would then be dissecting, you know, humans using this book. And the, the teachers would be saying, and as you can see, there's the extra rib that's in this book, which 
wasn't there and nobody would say anything. And this, this astounded me. And so this would happen. This happened for probably hundreds of years where nobody said, what are you talking about? There isn't a rib there. That's incorrectly drawn. What are we doing? But everyone just said, yeah, that's academia. Let's, let's just accept it, which is kind of where I'm coming from in terms of economics. Oh yeah. This is, that, that is very, that is very Kuhnian. The, the, the essence of what he says is that we will, uh, when we're faced with data and a theory or a narrative, a story, as he as he describes it, we we prioritise the story over the data, and that's exactly what's happening uh, with with COVID. We're, we're getting a lot of data, which is challenging the story, but you know, the, the the so-called sage advisors, the government advisors are sticking to their theory, their story about how this is playing out and twisting the data to fit their story, which is, you know, it's a fascinating piece of human behavior, um, but obviously with, in this case, devastating consequences. You've, you've touched on Sage. Would you suggest that if, you, if it's a binary choice, would you favor cock-up or conspiracy to describe the state we're currently in. And when I say we, it's the sort of royal we, because it's not just the UK, it's like half the world. Yeah, um, I'm going to say cock up. It's a close call, though, frankly. Um, I'm going I'm to say I think it's a, it's a cock up what's going on now. I think we've got a situation where um, you, you might have heard of a book called Factfulness by Hans Rosling. Um, Hans Rosling was an interesting character, and funnily enough, he was a Swedish academic. And I rather suspect that um, because he's relatively famous in Sweden, um, he may have helped to inoculate uh, the Swedish powers that be against some of this uh, daft thinking that's going on around COVID. Um, But what he did, he spent his career explaining that the world is getting better not worse, if you like, that poverty is declining, wealth is going up, um, people are living longer, they're getting better nutrition. Not an argument that will sit well with mainstream media. Not not an argument that sits well with mainstream media. And that was actually the point, because he spent spent years um, explaining this reality and developing great uh, graphical ways of presenting it. He was one of the pioneers of sort of data data presentation if you like um and then towards the end of his career um he passed away recently unfortunately he he wrote a book called factfulness and that book is a combination of presenting this optimistic data and also explaining why we humans won't listen to it and he he explains it's basically because we're not designed to optimize we're designed to survive Mm. And because we're designed to survive, we've evolved a set of uh, human behavioural biases, which means... Well, we, over, we overreact to scary things. Yeah, we very rationally pay attention to bad news because, you know, if you, you're walking through the savannah in, in Africa and somebody shouts, hey, there's a deer over there, it doesn't matter. Somebody shouts, hey, there's a lion over there, you've got to pay attention, even if, you know, nine out of ten times the concern about the lion is wrong, the tenth time you die. So you you pay attention to scary stories. So the media, which is in the basically in the business of trying to grab your attention to sell adverts, 
the media can only make money by peddling scary stories. So effectively, the media is a hysteria machine or an anxiety machine. Um, what we've had evolve in the next, in the last few years is social media, which is just a much more powerful way of spreading this anxiety. So I think what we're seeing with COVID is the first truly global mass hysteria. Mm. And I think it's coming about, about because we've got a new vehicle, social media, and we haven't yet learned how to respond to it. So the scare stories are, are resonating. Uh, that's, if you like, the base the base case. So the, the initial scare stories that you know, 5% of the population was going to die from this, uh, from this virus gained a lot of traction. They gained a lot of uh, supporters in government, as we see, because we, we implemented these lockdown strategies. Then what happened fairly quickly, it was, it was obvious really within a couple of weeks um, of, of the scare sort of hitting the UK and hitting, if you like, the Western world as well. It was obvious within a few weeks that the virus was not nearly as dangerous as we initially thought, as in it, it, it was really only lethal to a very narrow section of society, older people and people with uh, the term we've all learned now, comorbidity. But rather than respond to that new data and say, hey, we've, we've realized it's not as dangerous as we thought, therefore we should be, if you like, stepping down on the responses. Instead of doing that, we did uh, what Thomas Kuhn would have uh, expected us uh, to do, if you like, in following the, the bad science model. And that is, rather than adapt the response to the data, we attempted, um, and we are, adapting the data to the response. So it, it's sorry to interrupt. It's, it, it's worse than I'd, I'd suggest it's worse than the picture you portray in that. I mean, as someone who, who spends a lot of time spending a lot of time as a, a euphemism for wastes a lot of time on Twitter, <laughs> um, it, virtually nobody actually lives on Twitter. So the, it's the mainstream media that's also been this responsible oh, with this echo chamber yeah. in as much as to, to my knowledge, Ofcom very early on said, you will tow the party line on reporting of coronavirus or we will take your license away. Yes. Now, so just at the time when you wanted, uh, let's, let's, let's use a sort of a, you know, uh, a loaded phrase, uh, the truth to emerge, you weren't getting it from anywhere. Yeah. Um, now, and, and this is where you start to get into, you know, some, Conspiracy some theory, darker, darker ideas. I am, um, I am doing my I'm doing my best to avoid those, but um, it's clear there that once we started down this path, e even you know within days of going into lockdown, the costs to the economy were already in the tens, probably hundreds of billions of pounds. Mm. So immediately we start this path, the cost of admitting you're wrong becomes extremely high. Well, this is this is the introduction of a of a great economics uh, phrase, the sunk cost fallacy. But, yeah. but wouldn't but couldn't we have just, um, you know, we had the first lockdown, and then the numbers, everything went down in the summer. All the graphs just started to flatten out. If there was, there would have been no shame at that point in just saying, okay, we've done the right thing. Let's let's slowly move back to life as normal. Reality, reality, okay. and and so I I. I 
I get what you're saying, and I get what everybody says. Like we we're sticking to this line, but there was no need to. There was no line to stick to it by that point. Let 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 me introduce another um, another long dead author, Um, a guy called Leon Festinger. Um, Now, could could you spell could you spell the surname just so we can look it up? Sorry, uh, E uh, sorry F E S T I N G E R. I think Brilliant. it is. Thank you. Um, uh, yes, that's that's correct. Um, he's the guy that's responsible for the phrase cognitive dissonance. Now, um, funnily enough, I wrote an article a few days back just trying to uh, look at the costings of um, of what we've done with the lockdown. And I, all I did with the article was I, I pointed out that in order to extend the life of a person, the NHS spends about £15,000 per life year that it extends life by, if you like. And that's used as a framework for evaluating which medical uh, treatments get paid for and which don't get paid for. And they, they do the calculation in in terms of what's called a quality-adjusted life year or quality. So, so uh, in that article, what I did was I said, okay, if the NHS can provide a quality-adjusted life year for £15,000, what what's the cost of extending life with, a, with the lockdown? Because there's actually uh, the ONS has got a website, I think it's the ONS, has got a website tracking the cost of the COVID measures so far, and it's coming at about £210 billion as of the start of August. So I said, okay, let's assume... 250 billion at the moment. It's going to be way higher than that. I think it's going to be more than double that. But let's say 250 billion. And then how and then how many life years do we think has been gained by this? Actually, the evidence is no life years have been gained by this. We've probably lost life years. But let's be generous and say that they've that these policies have cut the death rate by 50% relative to where it would have been. And then look at how. Uh, the average age of the people that died. Um, in the article, I used the I used seventy nine year old uh, as the average age of death. In fact, it's eighty two as the later data has shown. So that gives you a an estimate or a way to estimate how much how many life years are being lost for each COVID victim. I used about five years in the calculation, given how old the average victim is. If you work it all through. That means that we are now paying, on the government's own statistics, we're now paying a million pounds per life year relative to 15,000 at the NHS, that the NHS usually charges. That then works out at a, uh, I think it was a 6,700% inflation rate for the cost of um, medical costs this year. When you look at it like that, you see why it's done, because the cost is not borne by the NHS, it's borne outside of the NHS. So it so it works basically in terms of figures. Yeah. Obviously it doesn't, but it does in that Yeah, sense. I mean it, it, in reality I th- I think well, there's two two ways to criticize that calculation. One is actually when you look at our death rate relative to Sweden, we haven't actually saved any lives at all. And then if you factor in the um the costs of cancer deaths and and other people that haven't been treated by the NHS during this period, 
then it's not just that we haven't saved lives, we've actually cost lives. So there's, there's that criticism. And then there's the fact that in my costing calculation, I didn't factor in any of the costs to the private sector, which are going to at least double that figure. So we're actually, we're spending millions of pounds for a theoretical gain that's probably not there. And on the other side of it, we've turned off an NHS system, which for all its flaws, we know can extend life for only £15,000 a year. So it's just a, it's a remarkably mad set of policies we're engaged in at the moment. If, if we look to the future, with all the money that's been pumped into the system, and if we're saying that this uh, virus is not as bad as we thought it would be, and at some point, common sense, will, common sense will prevail. Um, can I... On that common sense point, can I come back to um, the point I wanted to make on Leon Festinger? Sure. Because, as I say, he came up with this uh, phrase, cognitive dissonance, and a, and a theory of cognitive dissonance, which is basically that um, we humans have lots of different ideas about different things. Some of them are incompatible with each other. And when, we, when we're confronted with two ideas that we believe in, that we can see are irreconcilable, that puts us into a, a state of stress, cognitive dissonance. And we try to then twist our beliefs of reality in order to get those two conflicting ideas to, to become compatible. Now, the fascinating thing um, is how he came up with that theory. And, and it was actually um, one of the readers of the article I was just talking about who um, emailed me to say to suggest I looked at this this work and he came up with this theory by studying doomsday cults <laughs> this is this is religious sects that predict the end of the world um, and politicians as they're now known <laughs> <laughs> yes uh, or yeah sage if you like um, so what he studies historical examples and obviously there's lots of religious cults that that have done this in the past. Um, but it turned out, um, I think it was 1955 in America when, um, when this was happening, when he was doing this, this research. And it turned out that there was actually a doomsday um, cult in play at the time when he was doing this research. So he sent a couple of students to infiltrate the group and, um, and observe them from the inside to see their behavior. And they were predicting at the time, um, basically a, a great flood in America that was going to wipe out, um, wipe out humanity and bring, bring about the end of the world. But the point, the point is, um, these doomsday cults, when they have, uh, they predict the end of the world on a particular time frame, he was interested in what happens when the time comes and they're proven to be wrong. How do they change their belief structure in response to being uh, proven to be wrong. We just changed and, the date. Well, yes, this is this is exactly it. So the obviously some followers go, oh well, that was a load of nonsense, and leave. But the most ardent followers, the ones that have really uh, invested their ego, if you like, their personal status in the uh, in the beliefs, rather than uh, rather than accept they were wrong. They actually go out and become even more evangelical. So to preserve their own ego and status, if you like, they're 
sense of self-worth, they go out and try and recruit new new people to the cult. You would not predict think, that. You would not predict that. That is you. You might predict yes. that they would be the same, but to be even more fervently of that mind is is very surprising. With any dealings with climate yes. change, skept climate change advocates, then uh, well, anyway. I think if you if you look at uh, if you look at one of the recent um, updates from uh, from the government scientists when they came up with this non prediction prediction where they showed this chart of the COVID cases that were going to be doubling every seven days. Um, that, I think, is an example of this sort of behavior. These people have invested their careers and their reputations in making this doomsday prediction. It has been comprehensively disproven. So rather than rather than accept that it was wrong and go back they, and, they and double down. Praise, they, they're actually now predicting an even more shocking scenario. They've just moved the date back. It's now a second wave rather than the first wave. So they've, they've, they've done exactly what you would expect from a doomsday cultist. And so this is a, it's a fascinating piece of research. Um, in effect, uh, I think that's what's going on here. It's bizarre, though, it seems. I think we've got this sort of um, uh, mass hysteria and then a, a, a doomsday scenario. If, if someone were to give you a magic wand and say, if you wave this wand, everything will be fixed, what would what would that consist of doing? How would you basically reset in a positive rather than a negative way from where we are? Um, well, from where we from where we are now, we've got to we've got to try to unwind the fear, um, and I think we've got to we've got to explain that in the vast majority of cases, this is this is a relatively benign virus. If you're young and healthy, it's very rare for it to be a severe problem. Now, by the by, the very logic of you know, the, the the fear of transmission, what we should be trying to do is get a maximum infection rate of those that are healthy. We should be encouraging students to go out and party at the moment. So this is herd immunity, effectively. Yeah. So that when they come back to their families with grandparents in them at the end of term in a few weeks' time, um, most of them will will be immune and can't transmit it. That's a far healthier way of looking at it. And also the the idea that we we should be delaying um, this second wave at the moment is also, I think, quite um, quite worrying because, of course, if we delay it into winter, all we're doing is we're overlapping it with the conventional flu. So you've got a much higher risk of getting the NHS overloaded, even on their own internal logic. So I think we, I think we need to basically follow the Swedish model. The problem with that, of course, for the policymakers that are in, in charge of this is we're looking at, I think in the UK, we're looking conservatively at a one trillion pound bill already. This is the, mm. the biggest policy mistake outside in of history. war. This is the biggest policy mistake in human history. Mm. Um, so they they simply cannot unwind that without admitting that their careers are over. Well, well, that's the world's smallest violin playing for their reputations. <laughs> yes, I can just hear it in the background. So, if we were to take um, the view that this is this is all wrong, and at some point, and we we don't know when that will be, but at some point, it will become so 
blatantly obvious and evident that things will have to go back to normal with all the money that's swilling around the system. Is there a possibility that we could be looking at something which I could describe as the big bounce back? where we will actually have so much activity because everybody's been you know, cooped up in their houses. They just want to go out and spend money. They want to go and see people. They want to do business. And it will be inflationary, but it will also be a big positive wave because there'll be so much money in the system. Is, that, is, is there a kind of lid on the, uh, a cork in the bottle that is ready to pop at some point once, once we hit, hit a certain tipping point? Um, yes, but with a caveat and no. Okay. Um, <laughs> yes, I think there is there is a monumental monumental amount of money in the system. Um, this is this you know if I put my sort of um, economic analyst's hat back on for a minute, this is the weirdest crisis economic crisis in history because almost all economic crises, in fact, I think all of them. Um, correspond to people's incomes going down on average. Usually unemployment goes up, um, incomes come down, people are short of money in a crisis. That's almost the definition of a crisis. Um, This one has been odd because the furlough payments have been so generous in a lot of countries that the savings rates have actually gone up because although wages have gone down a bit, expenditure has gone down even further. So if you're lucky enough to be still employed or furloughed, you've actually done financially very well out of this, which is probably why it's been supported so far. But what's now, I think, going to happen as the the furlough um, payments roll off is you're going to see the real unemployment. And And that's the challenge to the bounce back theory. Yeah, the money's in the system. In some areas, that money is going to get spent. But in a lot of cases, people now realize that they've been effectively their careers have been bought for a few thousand pounds. And and that few thousand pounds needs to be saved to to compensate for or not to compensate, but to help out with the, the period of unemployment ahead. So I think there's there will be some there will be some bounce back. But it, this has now gone on so long that the structural unemployment, I think, is going to be quite high for for a number of years and i think that's that sort of points against it now i think the the other thing that um we've got to we've got to recognize as a reality here and that is that although i wouldn't say this has been caused by um you know some sort of grand conspiracy and people in smoke-filled rooms there's no doubt about it that the the fact that the the lockdowns have happened um, and the way they've happened is being used to push a lot of agendas. Mm. And I think that, you know, it's a very convenient vehicle to push agendas. And I think we're seeing agendas being pushed. You know, even if you, you try uh, getting around London these days and you see that a lot of the roads are being converted into cycle lanes. Yes, yes, I have Think, noticed yes. that. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, so bizarrely, it's actually more difficult to get around by by car, even though there's no traffic. But Yes. Well, well done, Sadiq Khan. But I, so, I, I could actually defend that in, in as much as I, I would, you know, let's say it's a healthy way to get around and it's, it's better for everyone. And is there anything, yeah, wrong, yeah. Is there anything wrong with that? No, I'm, I'm, I wouldn't even say it's necessarily a bad thing. Um, but it is, uh, it is an opportunistic use of a crisis to, to push through this sort of agenda. And I think, I think we're going to see that... Um, if you like, an environmental agenda being pushed. 
we've seen it already with Boris's Build Back Better and um, his promoting wind farms. I think the economy is not going to be allowed to bounce back into the same state. There's going to be a lot of agendas sort of strapped to this crisis, which means that it's going to go back into a different phase. And I rather suspect that mass transport and mass tourism is going to take a, uh, the brunt of a lot of that regulatory um, hit. So I, I would expect that you know, in future years, you're probably going to see far fewer flights. Do you think Boris will be in office uh, next year? Um, hmm. Would you like to see Boris in office next year? Because the only reason I haven't personally been more critical of the silly blonde (laughs) is that uh, I want to get Brexit (laughs) done first. Um, Yeah, don't don't hold back there, Tim. Um, It's a fact. It's a family show. (laughs) um, Because we know that Boris has done his bit for for populating families. I, I think. I think within a few months, it's going to be obvious to to pretty much you know, anybody that's paying attention. It's going to be obvious that the the lockdown has been uh, both a healthcare disaster and an economic disaster. The question is whether Boris has managed to uh, position himself sufficiently away from that, and whether he's going to let Matt Hancock and the Sage advisors not take take the blame. Um, what I what I'd to... quite like to do as a business is I don't know if anyone could could help us out in this. Ba- basically, because burning people is wrong, set up a business making effigies of Neil Ferguson out of twigs. I think that could be a real winner. We've got bonfire night, coming especially up. especially because we've got bonfire night coming up. Exactly. Oh, no, 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 guys, come on! You can't do bonfire night. That would inqu- that would require a gathering of the, more well, than six the, the root of six would would be immediately broken. <laughs> no, but um, socially distanced will, bonfire night. Will he Will he be in power? I, I really don't know. Um, should he be in power? No, I think he shouldn't be. Um, somebody has to be accountable for this. And so far, nobody appears to be yeah. accountable to anything. The the thing that mitigates his risk, I guess, is the fact that um, the COVID response has been uniform across the political spectrum. You know, if anything, mm. uh, Keir Starmer wants an even harsher response. It's, so, it's staggering, isn't it, that the Labour's been given the biggest open goal of all time and then just kicked itself in the head and knocked itself unconscious. Yes, there's only there's only one political party, and I'm, I'm going to give them a little plug here, and that's the SDP, headed up by a guy called William Clouston, who's a friend of mine, who does a very good job. There's only the SDP, which is a, a, a tiny little party in the UK that has come out with anything vaguely sensible on this policy and pointing out that actually the, the lockdowns are are doing far more damage than good. But as far as the mainstream parties go, it's been an unmitigated disaster. What policies are you worried about that they've been putting through? I mean, there's the, the old burying bad news, uh, you know, burying news on a bad day, you know, that happens all the time in politics, you know, things they want to just get, get out of the way and not let, you know, people really see. But I mean, you mentioned one, which I think is relatively benign, although it's, 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 uh, it's clear that it's happening. What were there others? Um, well, I, I think the, I think the manipulation of healthcare data is, is, is really quite concerning. How, how the, do we know it's manipulated? That... <laughs> okay. I'm, uh, yeah, I believe it is. Okay. Um, it, the the manipulation of the presentation of it, if you like, because okay. we are because we have moved from um, 
quite a sensible framework for costing medical policies, which is, you know, as I explained earlier, by NICE, where they they look at the the cost per year of life that's that's bought effectively for the for the money. Um, that's been entirely thrown out. So in, instead of instead of costing this properly and accepting that all all government uh, policies have to weigh costs and benefits. You know, if, if we spend more money on education, everybody wants to spend more money on ed- education. But if we do that, we have to spend less money on something else. So should we should we boost healthcare and cut education? Should we um, boost social security and cut defense spending? All of these things are constantly weighed. And it's accepted that if you're going to boost spending in one area, you can you're going to have to cut it back in another area. That's that is the job of government, in essence, to work out how to spend um, the taxpayer's money, how much money to take from the taxpayer, and then how to allocate it. This um, this COVID crisis has has thrown all of that out. We've become a single policy state. Everything is is subsumed to this one goal of uh, minimising the virus, which is that that to me is a derelict dereliction of duty by the government you've you, you talked earlier about the, the the monstrous bill that's sort of barreling towards us for this or just in the context of the uk first and then maybe we can talk globally do you, is does your outlook involve inflation deflation stagflation um, hyperinflation? um i i i think in the end this is inflation um there's i've mentioned a few sort of behavioral biases that i think have led us into this into this position there's a there's a couple of other ideas that I think have also been complicit. Um, if you've been following the economic debate over the last few years, you you can't have missed uh, three letters MMT um, representing modern monetary theory. Uh, this magic is money tree or the magic money tree. Yeah, I mean I've I've written about it a, a few times. Um, it's it's the idea that governments can't go bankrupt because they print their own money. And that is true. If you if a government doesn't borrow in a foreign currency, if it only borrows in its own currency, then it can just print money to pay off its debts, so it never needs to go bankrupt. But it can destroy the value of its currency in the process. It, it can destroy the value of its currency. Now, the problem with MMT, there's many problems with MMT, but the at the... At the base level, if you like, the problem with MMT is it takes away all discipline on government spending. So any any project, no matter how crazy it might be, can be funded if you're in if you follow the MMT mindset and you you don't have you don't consider that you have to balance your expenditure against your tax receipts. So that allows governments to do ever more marginal projects with which get a lower return on investment if you like so over time for the long the longer the mmt mindset is in place we're likely to get government spending that gives you a lower and lower return on that spending and if you think about that that is exactly what inflation is if over time you're getting less and less value for money then you're suffering inflation and i and that's basically what i was saying with the calculation on the lockdown, we're, we're buying, we used to buy a, a quality, a quality adjusted life year for £15,000. We now might be buying them for a million pounds. So 
that 6,700% of inflation uh, is because we've got this mindset that any bill can be paid. If I'm sure if Boris Johnson had thought that he had to go out to the taxpayer and actually raise the money for the lockdown in tax, I'm sure he would have paused before doing these policies because he, he would have known that he would have destroyed his electoral base immediately. But instead, he's got a compliant central bank who now has the MMT mindset embedded in it. And that central bank is saying, do what you like. We will print the money to buy the bonds that you issue to pay for these policies. And in the end, that mindset is a, um, you know, it, it is what what was in place prior to or during the, the, the sort of hyperinflation of, of Germany in the in the 20s, the Zimbabwe style hyperinflation, um, Venezuela. It's the same. It's the same mindset. Hopefully, we can you know head it off at the pass and not let it not let it really uh, take hold. But in order to do that, people have got to understand that, that this is happening. Do you see merit then in in let's say? partial ownership within a portfolio of precious metals um yeah i I mean i i can see i can see the argument for that i think you um you need as an investor you need real assets here you need things Mm. that are in some way uh hedged tangible tangible things that protect you against uh, a devaluation of money could could we broaden the question to what do you, what investments do you think are worth looking at at the moment and which ones should you avoid? Okay. Um, yes. I mean, I, I manage a, an equity portfolio for my, my day job. That's, that's what I do professionally. Um, and I think the equity market is still the best place to protect yourself against this scenario. And that's, and that's because I think this is a different type of inflation to that, which is likely to, that, that, that we're used to studying. So, there's a lot of there's a lot of people who study 1970s inflation and conclude it's going to be bad for the equity market. The difference with the 1970s, I think, relative to now, is that in the 1970s, the source of inflation was largely uh, union militancy, unions asking for higher wages. So the inflation, the dynamic that was driving inflation back then was effectively a cost to the corporate sector, so as in the wage bill. In this one, uh, we've got a, a different dynamic. The, ge- the likely generator of inflation is going to be the government injecting money into the, into the economy with, without taxation. And that's the point of, of MMT. MMT says a government can spend without taxing. Um, and that's stimulative and ultimately inflationary. And this is one of the reasons that I think the um, the, the stock market is a good place to be. That said, I think given, as I, as I said earlier, given that the economy is going to be reshaped by this event, you've got to be very careful because a lot of, uh, a lot of companies effectively were, were in an industrial revolution, if you like, uh, or an accelerated industrial revolution because of COVID. And uh, that means that a lot of companies are going to be put out of business. So, I think you've um, you've got to effectively uh, join the bandwagon and get on board with a lot of the technology companies that are benefiting from this. Some would say that they're already priced to perfection, and there's, like, for example, Zoom is is uh, is at a point where it's worth 
more than uh, probably many other companies that produce. <laughs> uh, I just yeah. can't think of who at the moment, but they're, they're, they're very, very expensive. It's very expensive stock. And, yeah. and yeah. Where, where can it really go from here unless we're all forced to work from home and every office is completely shut? So I suppose there's always upside. There's always a scenario, but is yeah. it a likely one? Yeah, I, I think, and this is a, this is a real challenge here because um, in, in, any, in any real financial bubble, you have two. One, you have easy money, and two, have a persuasive narrative with an element of truth. And then as the bubble um, plays out, the, the, the markets essentially use the, the cheap money to turn that persuasive, valid narrative into something truly ridiculous. And I think this is happening already in, in certain areas of the market. I think we're in a bubble, and I think uh, in other areas we're, we're probably not there yet. We, we may well get there so it's a treacherous it's a treacherous market i don't think i don't think the whole market is in a bubble but there are companies i'm not going to talk about individual companies uh here um but there are companies i think that are already very clearly in a speculative bubble and and those i think you've got to you've got to avoid but that's obviously easier said than done so commodities broadly do they interest you or, or are you thinking that the slowdown could possibly um, affect them more um no i i'm broadly commodities and i don't i don't find so exciting at the moment um particularly the oil market i think has got a problem as i say i think the i think the crisis is being used opportunistically to reshape a lot of industries that are seen as polluting and uh, so i think there there is going to be an acceleration of the, the green agenda out of this and and this may be the you know the one really positive thing that comes out of this this crisis maybe we will take action on an environmental side that needs to be done um but i think that means that we've probably got a structural oversupply in the oil market at a time when you know we are seeing some genuine uh, progress in renewables so renewables are becoming competitive so i think we're, we're probably faced with a, a, a structural oil glut uh for the for the foreseeable future i think it, it may well be that we have now seen peak oil it may that might be you know what what the, one of the things that the covid crisis marked um gold i think is a different thing because gold i think is a monetary commodity rather than a, an industrial commodity I think you've answered the question already, but I'll ask it anyway. We've had a, a question from one of our listeners, Sanjay, who, who asks, um, a hedge fund manager recently argued a case for buying energy companies, in particular oil, because when the market turns to new normal, whatever that means, there will not be enough oil in the system to meet the demand required. And because of the lag in terms of infrastructure, oil prices will rise, causing a rise in energy prices, in particular for those energy companies that supply oil. From what you said, you do not see much validity to that thesis. Yeah, I'm I'm not a buyer of that thesis because I think um, I I'm just not expecting mass transport, mass tourism to come back um, in any reasonable time frame. I think we're we're years away from seeing that uh, that comeback. But inflation in general wouldn't that push up commodity prices? And what about what about countries like? You know China, who it will will jump at the opportunity at cheap energy prices. Uh, um, yes, in the in the end it will, um, but it's a question of of relative, um, you know, relatively where 
where the inflation bites. And I just, I don't, I don't see it in the energy sector. Um, perhaps in the, um, you know, some some of the metals. I, I copper, copper, say. Perhaps I could see it more plausibly in the um, in the constituents of batteries, for example. Um, you know, the, we are we are going through a, a battery revolution in the uh, in the auto sector. I think it's very questionable whether that's really in the interests of the environment or not. When you look at the the whole life cycle of those cars, but nonetheless, uh, the policies are are being put in place to effectively force everybody into uh, hybrids and and uh, electric vehicles. So I can see elements uh, where you will get a, a monetary benefit. And even, even in the oil market, eventually you will get it. If you see such a large debasement of currency, then you will see um, – you will see the oil price rise, but in real terms, which is what investors have to think about. Um, in real in real terms, I think it's still likely to be falling. So, in in other words, relative to the rest of your cost of living. Do you have a view on government bonds at the moment? Do you think they're overvalued, or um, um, do you think they'll continue to be held up as as people worry about the banking system, perhaps? I I, th- I think the government government bonds in Essentially, all developed Western economies are no longer in a free market. Uh, they, their biggest purchaser are their own central banks. So effectively, you've got a sort of pantomime going on where the government issues the bonds. They notionally exist in the, in the private sector markets for, for a very short period before they are then bought by the central bank and put onto their balance sheet. So what what people tend to do using the um, again using classical finance um, orthodoxy is they look at the the yields on a long term bond and then from that they back out an infl- an expected path of inflation and conclude that bond yields are low therefore the likelihood uh, of inflation being low in the future is also uh, it, the likelihood that is also that inflation will be low in the future. That's, you can also, sorry to interrupt. You can also justify very expensive equity valuations on that logic as well. If you're oh making yeah, a I, comparative I think case, you, I think that you know, don't get me wrong. Equities are expensive, but they are expensive for a reason, and they're expensive for, because money is being devalued in this way. So it's it's self consistent. You can't you can't expect. Uh, you can't expect to say earn ten percent dividend yield on an equity when the bond market is being pushed to a negative yield. You know, there there, there is an equilibrating force. If you like, the government's the the central bank policy of forcing government bond yields into a negative territory is to push investors into other assets. They think it's to it, it will encourage investment spending. I'm less sure about that, but it's certainly encouraging more fa- financial speculation. So, yeah, they, uh, the harsh truth for investors right now is there are no, uh, there are no easy, uh, safe places to park your money. You've got to take, you've got to take some risk, and you've got to understand what you're doing. If you park your money in government bonds, you're going to be paying away a negative real return, a negative yield after inflation every year. So you will, you're gradually, uh, as I'd like to put it if you're buying a long-term government bond 
you're making a charitable donation to the tax man every year. Mm. And it's a bit like lockdown though, isn't it? Because you've got, as you say, you've got a false market, but many of the players in that market are doing so on an involuntary basis because they're obligated through compliance and compulsion <laughs> to own this crap. Uh, you've got you've got me onto one of my favourite topics now, and that is the, the, the regulations that have been put in place around pensions to encourage pensions to buy bonds, government bonds. Um, this is another area, I think, where we've got a real problem coming. And that is, if you think about it, if the central bank is buying the bonds in order to create inflation, then the, by definition, the market is no longer a fair reflection of future inflation risks. So they're trying to push yields down in order to push future inflation up. But on the other side of that, you've got pension funds who believe they are protecting their pensioners' future pension costs by looking at the bond markets, estimating spending costs in the future, and then investing their pensioners' money in the bonds to try to immunize that risk. It's it's really a nonsense, and it, and it creates a, a situation where we put all of the money into pension funds today, in, in sorry, into bonds today, we then create the inflation in the future and the money that's uh, that, that's in those bond funds will just not be able to pay a, a living pension in the future so we've we've got a problem coming down the down the pipe in in the pension market because of this um, this love affair with bonds so being a physicist and uh, looking at uh, technology i suppose you don't get much time to do that anymore given that you're concentrating solely on the, on the financial markets but one big area is obviously ai do you have any views on ai and investing or ai in general um well we're we're invested in a lot of the companies that are that are making the chips the silicon chips uh, that effectively the ai software is running on um i think it's actually it's a it's probably overhyped in several areas, but it is, it's very exciting. I think it is going to lead to you know, a, a, a truly transformational um, change in the economy. If The way I like to explain it is it, the, first, um, the first industrial revolution, if you like, was automating human labor, if you like. So mechanized weaving machines, mechanized digging machines, mechanized plowing machines, things like that mechanized transport so it was automating physical jobs the decision making was still done by humans you still had a human driving the car the new uh, industrial revolution the ai industrial revolution is going to automate both the human labor and the decision making we're, we're seeing that already and i think that's you know the the potential for that is is just unlimited in some ways, I'm very optimistic about that. I'm, I'm very optimistic about what that does for economic progress as managed, as measured in a sort of GDP way. Um, on the other side of that, I, I do have some pretty serious concerns about what that does to society, what that does to employment um, and, and how the AI is being used to effectively manipulate opinions and, and society. I think that's a, that's a big concern. But I think from from a purely economic point of view, I think AI is 
is actually uh, very powerful for creating growth in the future. One of the subjects that you that we mentioned just before we came on air that you wanted to talk about was was Brexit, and we haven't talk, we haven't spoken about <laughs> it, so so we should really talk about it. Um, yeah, I mean, you you asked the question: um, Will Boris be in power next year? Should he be in power? Um, as far as I can see, the only thing that I'm liking about uh, about the way he's he's conducting himself and his government at the moment is it does seem to be coming to um, the right conclusion on Brexit. And that is that, that we should be doing it and we shouldn't be doing it in a way that uh, effectively hands sovereignty back to the EU. I think the, the thing I would say with Brexit is, and the, the negotiation around Brexit is I think people are sort of surprised that the negotiations have gone the way they've gone they've stalled effectively but i think the logic of what what's behind brexit sort of explains it the the reason as i see it the british have decided to leave is because in the minds of the british the european union was always an economic project it was it was a free trade zone and it was designed to boost the economic performance of the region and that was if you like how it was originally sold to the to the British people, in the eyes of many of the Europeans, it's not an economic project. It's a political project. It's about creating a single country in Amer- in Europe to mimic the American system, the United States of of Europe. Now, that might be a, a valid goal. It might not be a valid goal, but that's what it's there for. When you look at the Brexit negotiations, where if you like, a lot of commentators over here are going, well, you know, why is why is a deal not being reached? That's not good for the economy. If you look at it from a political point of view and say, well, the purpose of the union is to create a political union, you don't necessarily want a trade deal. If that trade deal means that more more people are likely to leave the union, then you would rather damage the economy to protect protect the political goals which I think is what's going on. I think Europe doesn't want a trade deal because that risks um, dissent in the ranks. Others might might choose to follow the British path. So they would actually rather impose um, negative economic costs both on themselves and, if they can, on us um, as the price of, of keeping the, the political dream alive. One, one thing I would suggest is that... Uh the coronavirus the, I, I, I rephrase that the government's overreaction to coronavirus is so expensive that brexit now just looks like a rounding error oh yes I, I think it's entirely it's entirely irrelevant now it's you know in a in a way i think it's it produces quite an easy situation to say okay no no deal let's let's go to no deal and and then um and then sort things out afterwards because Frankly, we'll we'll never even notice it compared to the economic disruption we've we've created with the lockdowns. There's a story in today's uh, Mirror that Boris Johnson plans to resign in the spring because he's not being paid enough to support his several thousand children. <laughs> um, so, George, do you have any plans to write another book? I yeah, I I am toying with one at the moment. Um, I I have a. I have a draft outline, um, so there may be another one coming. Uh, every time I write a book, I say never again. <laughs> it's and like running a marathon. Go by. 
So yeah, so um, yes, the, there is there is another one, and it may touch on some of the things that are happening this year. What what would be the broader subject title that you're you're kind of pushing around at the moment? Um, I'm not going to. You're not going to reveal that at the moment. Aha, okay. Partly, partly okay. because Jeez. I don't know it, but I, <laughs> I think I think one of the things that um, that needs to be talked about is. Um, our sort of paranoia that's developed about risk generally. We've become a very, very timid society. And, and the, you know, our response to COVID is, is part of it. Um, th- there is a, another idea that's, that's been kicking around in the pseudo-intellectual space called the precautionary principle. Um, and this is the idea that you basically you should take... Um, extreme precautionary measures against imagined threats. Uh, I think this is part of the um, part of the mindset that's got pension funds uh, refusing to take investment risk and instead sticking the, all the money in government bonds. It's part of the mindset that that means that governments can't or, or won't say to their populace, look, we have a virus. It is going to kill people. Unfortunately, there's nothing we can do about that in the end, we've got to accept that that, that will happen and take you know, reasonable precautions, but not silly precautions. So I, I think there's a there's an extreme risk aversion in society uh, that um, that it, that's actually producing more risks than it's saving us from. Do you read any Taleb? And that- um, yeah, I mean he he has been he's been promoting this precautionary principle uh, quite widely. I think I. I think whilst some of his writings um, in the early days were were very good about fat tail distributions, things like that, I think the precautionary principle is a is a huge academic mistake. Interesting. It's interesting because I've heard him saying, "Look, there's no downside to wearing a mask, so you should wear it." That's and and his yeah. his attitude is, "Yes, you should take all possible precautions." Um, yeah, I think I think that's just outright irresponsible. Um, I mean, I, I did speak with him when he first was putting out his original uh, precautionary principle paper. Um, there's a, a couple of uh, scenarios that he used to uh, to explain it. One was um, we shouldn't be doing nuclear power, for example, because nuclear power uh, could have catastrophic risks. Now, on the face of it, that's a persuasive argument, but if you if you follow the uh, the chain of events through you you could say well if the demand for electricity keeps rising but we prevent ourselves from using nuclear power that will mean that we will use more fossil fuels that will mean more environmental degradation and that could produce a catastrophic problem in the environment so it may be that actually the safest outcome is to use the nuclear power because that's less polluting. Similarly with another one that he likes to talk about, which is the um, genetically modified foods. If we ban genetically modified foods, that may save us from one set of risks, but if that forces us because of lower crop yields to uh, degrade the environment further by needing more and more land for agricultural use and more and more pesticides and things like that, um, equally, you could find that the the risk is is bigger from not using uh, the the GM foods, and this is the same 
with uh, his argument on masks. You could say, well, the masks appear to have a low cost, but they don't have a low cost because if you're forced to wear a mask, you're discouraged from going out. You, you participate in the economy less, uh, and there are potentially health consequences, but just focus on the economic side of things. It's a signal that frightens people. It changes their behavior. And as a result, the economy shrinks and therefore future tax receipts to support education, healthcare, things like that fall. And therefore, you do have a tangible cost. And that cost is possibly larger than the one you're trying to address. Uh, it's it's a, effectively a ceteris paribus uh, fallacy. The precautionary principle presumes that you don't that the actions you're taking in precaution don't themselves have negative implications and you just can't do that excellent so was there anything else you wanted to cover that we haven't we've we've covered quite a lot of ground we have yes (laughs) brilliant probably probably enough excellent okay tim should we go to media picks then to 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 lift the to lift the nation's spirits at this time of you know, grave national crisis. I'm going to go with the comedy. Uh, it's a film I saw. Well, uh, yeah, probably that's a film. It's only about an hour long. My favourite shapes by Julio Torres, who's a Salvadorian comedian, and it's one of the strangest things I've ever seen. Um, he's a Saturday Night Live writer, and he basically he's sitting in front of a conveyor belt talking about his favourite shapes. It is as it is as mad as it sounds, but it's, it has moments of extreme humour, so uh, recommend it for anyone that's got a slightly left of centre, slightly off-beam off approach to comedy. I, I thought it was terrific. Fantastic. Um, mine is going to be um, the film 1917 that's just come on Amazon Prime. Ah, so if you okay. didn't catch it, If you didn't catch it in the cinema, did you see it in the cinema, guys? I haven't seen it. You haven't seen it? Oh, it's excellent. So Sam Mendes, um, Roger Deakins is the cinematographer who I think is uh, an absolute legend. And it's a really good film. It's a really good film. It looks, so, it, uh, it, is, it looks a little, I mean, I've only seen the trailer. It looks a little Gallipoli-esque to me. Um, yeah, perhaps. But it, it's, uh, I, I just think it's, it's, all, it's all done in one shot. So everything's done in one shot. It's supposed to be real time, which is a logistical nightmare. And... Um, and it and it works very well. Like th- you can do things like that in a gimmick, and it's and it won't necessarily tell the story that well, but it it works really well for this. There is a film called Victoria, which is a, a film by some German filmmakers who literally shot everything in in one go, in one shot, and it is phenomenal. Just because of that, I mean, you just think, how on earth did they hold the camera and move from location to location and not make any technical errors over what is, it's not even an hour and a half film, it's a two hour film, which is phenomenal. So anyway, that aside, that was literally done in one shot. This is made to look like one shot, uh, which is which is very different, of course, but it's too big a production to do literally in one shot. Um, but in any case, what's most important is the story and the story is very good. So, and the acting is very good and, and everything else. So. Highly recommended. Um, and I, I, actually, we should also give a shout out to George's books, which we will put links into the the, uh, the show notes, because, of course, I know the origin of financial crisis because you've talked about it so much and you've written about it many times, Tim, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, certainly, I have I have my copy adorning my, my bookshelf. And you've, re- you've definitely referred to it. So that those will definitely go on in, in the show notes. But, George, what would you have as a recommendation 
for media picks any any book um, or film or something that you've really enjoyed or really hated okay i'm i'm going to go back to a book that i think was uh, it was published in 1956 actually i've just put it on my screen um and that is by um leon festinger who we talked about earlier and the title of the book i think is very very apt for today it's when prophecy fails excellent excellent stuff uh george just to say a massive thank you for coming on the show it's been a real pleasure um just before you go tell us a little bit about the ways that people could get in contact with you because you've got a website and what what sort of services do you provide is this for private investors is it for funds who who do you actually invest for? Oh, um, no, it's 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 a publicly available fund. Any anybody is welcome to invest in it. Um, you can get in touch with me um, through my company website. It's equitile.com. There's a uh, there's a link on there if you want to um, send me an, an email. Um, or alternatively, I am on uh, Twitter, but I'm much less active on Twitter these days. Um, so yeah, probably the company one is the, is the best way, uh, equitile.com. Um, and basically, uh, we, we try to invest money in a, in a sensible way, navigating, um, uh, the technological revolutions and also some of these, uh, other monetary challenges that we're, we're faced with at the moment. Fantastic. Excellent stuff. So Equitile Investments and Equitile.com. We'll put a link to that in the show notes. Just once again, a, a real pleasure. And we'd love to have you back on the show sometime in the future if you're able to. Absolutely. I enjoyed it. It's a great conversation. Thank you, Paul and Tim. Thank you. Thank you, George. And thank you so much for listening. We really appreciate it. And thank you for all your comments and support. It's been fantastic. We'll catch you next time. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Please do your own research or contact a professional advisor.